Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. When it comes to a vaccine for the coronavirus, many of us are already tired of waiting. We want our lives back. But it's important to have some perspective here. Just six months ago, scientists discovered the virus that causes COVID-19. Now we're in phase three of a clinical trial for a vaccine to stop it. No wonder the federal government calls it Operation Warp Speed. And yet, is warp speed a really a good idea when it comes to a virus like this? Well, Michael Kinch says no. He is the author of Between Hope and Fear, A History of Vaccines. He's also an associate vice chancellor and professor of biochemistry and molecular biophysics at Washington University and the director of the university's Centers for Research Innovation in Biotechnology and Drug Discovery. And last week, his piece, Urging Caution on a Coronavirus Vaccine, was published in STAT. And it quickly went, well, it went viral from there. Pardon, pardon the expression. And so he joins us today to talk about it. Michael Kinch, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah. So you wrote in your piece in STAT that there were growing whispers among scientists and medical professionals and that it was time to cry them loudly. What were those whispers saying to you? Well, so we've been researching uh, for a book that's going to come out on drug pricing. And I was speaking with a lot of folks either associated with FDA or that interact closely with the agency. And the concern that was being expressed quite consistently was that there were going to be undue pressures upon the regulators at FDA to approve a vaccine, perhaps too hastily. Hmm. And the concern was obviously if you approve a vaccine, you start to distribute it, people start to use it before adequate evidence of safety and efficaciousness that it works. If we do that too soon, then there could be a number of different ramifications that extend beyond just COVID-19. So let's talk first about that pressure. Is that pressure that they fear could be coming from the government or just from the general public that's so sick of dealing with this thing, even though, as we've said, it's only been about six months? Well, we're all sick of it. And believe me, I want a vaccine as fast, if not faster than everyone else. But I think that we're in a unique time period because we're in a presidential election. Mm. And the concern that I kept hearing was this October surprise idea that there may be an announcement of a vaccine approval simply to boost the ratings of one candidate or another. And that is troubling because science and medicine needs to be independent of any politics. So help put this in perspective for us. Your piece notes just how much progress we've made in six months. And when you break it down, it really does seem phenomenal. How long does it normally take to get this far, you know, the discovery of, of what this virus is and getting to this clinical trial in, in phase three that we've done here in six months? Well, based on the research that we've done at Washington University, on average, a vaccine will normally take between 10 and 20 years wow. for approval. The average probably being 12 or 13 years. And so we've done an amazing amount of work in a very, very short period of time. And that's to be commended. I mean, it's a huge positive for the scientific and medical communities. But again, we don't want to mess it up on that last leg of this relay race. So I've heard a number of, of comments about, hey, maybe this could get done by late October. What's the quickest you see us being able to get from where we are now to actually having a vaccine ready to go if no shortcut, shortcuts are taken, if everything goes the way that it needs to go? So we've already taken an enormous number of shortcuts and they've gotten this, this amazing progress that we've had. But now it comes down to real basic math. First of all, each of the vaccines is going to require tens of thousands of people to sign up to be volunteers 
to get the vaccine and then to monitor them for weeks or months to make sure that the vaccine is both safe and that it protects those individuals from the virus. And that involves a lot of time that just to get the people that a volunteer to organize them, to inject them, even if you could do all of that in let's say a few weeks, which would be remarkable, mm -hmm. you've still got to track them for months. So we're still looking at probably under the most ambitious circumstances, if we do this right, the beginning of 2021, maybe even somewhere into about the halfway point of 2021 before we'll have all of the data. Hmm. So us getting our hopes up about late, late October, we probably want to get over that thought. Well, we do, and we want to avoid, and, and frankly, this has been a big concern over the last about 36 hours, what just happened in Russia. So the Russian government just announced, we are the first in the world to introduce a vaccine that we're going to, uh, we've approved this. And when you look more closely, you realize that there's no evidence. They actually are beginning clinical testing of that today. Hmm. And they have not done these critical phase three trials. And so if you read the fine print on what the Russian government said, it said this vaccine is not to be distributed until January 1st, 2021 at the earliest. But even that is very, very ambitious. And it's likely that we will not fully understand how this vaccine works, if this vaccine works, and most importantly, whether this vaccine is effective. Or, I'm sorry, it's safe. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Michael Kinch of Washington University. He is truly an expert when it comes to a history of vaccines. He has written the book. And if you have a question about the possibility of a vaccine for the new coronavirus or this process that he's talking about playing out, you are welcome to join us. You can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Um, or you can email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, Michael, you had mentioned that there are some bad things that could happen if we rush this and get a vaccine that isn't ready, that hasn't been proven to be safe. What do you see as some of the, the things that could happen if we try to go too fast on this? Well, keep in mind a vaccine is different than a medicine. A medicine is generally something that you take to treat a disease for someone that's already got the disease. A vaccine is different because you're giving it to a healthy individual with the hopes that it will trigger immunity. Now, the problem is that the immunity that you trigger can last for, and hopefully it will last for, a lifetime. If you unintentionally end up triggering something that is unhealthy, for example, you get persistent what's known as inflammation or, or Lord forbid, autoimmune disease, that could be a lifetime's problem. Mm -hmm. And we have experiences of, and the most recent example being during the uh, Ford administration, Gerald Ford's administration, uh, there was an influenza vaccine that was rushed to market and a number of different individuals ended up getting something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a lifelong devastating um, inflammatory and, and autoimmune reaction. And to give you some perspective, that Guillain-Barre is what they think possibly caused FDR's incapacitation. It probably wasn't polio, many people Oh my, think. yeah, I always thought it was Guillain polio. <laughs> I, had, I had as well, but when you look into it, it turns out his symptoms are more consistent with that. Hmm. So the point being that we don't want to accidentally, even if it's one out of a thousand, you multiply that times 350 million Americans, and that's a large number of people that could be damaged and hurt by this. And the real key fundamental, which is the reason why I wrote this, and I wrote it in 20 minutes in exasperation one day, about two weeks ago. It's where the best uh, pieces come from. <laughs> I guess. 
Um, it was because we are we have so many safe, effective, and reliable vaccines already, and the anti-vaccine movement has been persistently growing. And we do not want to give this irrational idea any more ammunition. And if we end up approving a substandard vaccine for COVID, it could end up impacting measles, mumps, rubella, and many other diseases and making people say, well, maybe I don't want my children or myself to be vaccinated. And that would be a tragedy. Hmm. Well, that is a really sobering thought. I want to go to the phone lines. I know we have a, a number of people who have some some questions for you. Uh, let's talk to Nick, who's calling from Wentzville. Um, Nick, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hey, hello, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Hi, Dr. Kent, how are you? Um, so can you characterize the shortcuts or um, specific tasks they're taking out of a normal vaccine development pipeline in terms of like endpoint specific results or preclinical DMPK. Can you kind of characterize that and how it will potentially in, uh, increase the risk of an unsafe vaccine? Nick, thank you so, for that question. Uh, and it sounds like Nick has some knowledge about this field. Uh, Michael Kinch, thoughts on, on which kind of shortcuts where you see the problems could come from? So we've taken a lot of shortcuts already that have been primarily what are known as at-risk shortcuts, where, for example, you might manufacture something, not even sure whether that's gonna be the right thing, and you may have to go back and repeat it. So far, I don't believe we've done anything that would risk safety or risk the likelihood that we're going to have a bad vaccine. Uh, that would really come down to these, what are known as pivotal trials, the key trials that are needed to decide whether this vaccine is worth moving forward and worth distributing to the public. So I don't think we've had any shortcuts that have caused risk up till now. The danger would be if we prematurely decide, yes, this vaccine is ready to go, and then later find out that something could have gone wrong had we been more patient and done this the way that we normally do it. Hmm. You talked a bit about this uh, this flu vaccine that I guess this was in the uh, Ford administration. How subject historically is the FDA to political influence? Well, it can be very, um, this could be a particular problem when there's a big public outcry. Hmm. And in the case of the, um, what was called the swine flu epidemic of 75, which really didn't happen, it was a, a well-meaning decision where the Ford administration had to decide whether they were going to launch a vaccine prematurely before all the safety was in versus the risk that we could have a repeat of the 1918 flu or perhaps more apt to say what we're going through today where hundreds of thousands of people die. And they elected to move with the premature vaccine. And the consequence was that it turned out to be a rather mild flu and more people were probably injured by the vaccine in that case because of the rush than would have been had it just there had been no uh, particular attempt to make that vaccine. Wow, that is interesting. And it sounds like there, as here, this was a situation where there was some fear in the public. People wanted to, people wanted the administration to do something and they were responding there to was. that. There was, absolutely. And, and I think we're under the, part of the reason why, again, I wrote this piece was that Part of what's been discussed is that this, this particular vaccine for COVID may not go through the normal channels. It may go instead to the head of FDA making a decision. And that head of FDA is a political appointee. And if it really comes down to that one individual making the decision by themselves, that's dangerous hmm. because they have potentially ulterior motives. 
Let's go back to the phone lines. Darlene is calling from Overland. Darlene, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hello. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. And the doctor has pretty much answered my question. But that is one of my main concern. I am not an anti-vaxxer. I get a flu shot every year. But when I see uh, the CDC enter uh, issue guidelines and then take them back, and when I see a rewide, uh, you know, wildly respected doctor not say anything about bleach, and so it makes me really wonder how the science community is going to <clears throat> convince the public that what they're doing is safe. Darlene, I think that's a great point. I mean, right now we just have so much skepticism about everything in our culture. Michael Kinch, are you worried we're not going to want to take this thing, even if they do everything exactly right? Yes. And as a matter of fact, in January of this year, which seems like decades ago, <laughs> the biggest problem in infectious diseases was the growing anti-vax movement and the fact that we had measles and mumps on the rise. This is, we're in a very dangerous period because we're in a very strong anti-science period. And this happens periodically. Every few decades, you get into an anti-science period. It just happens in this case to coincide with the worst pandemic we've had in a century. And so we need to make reasonable decisions, not political decisions, and certainly not emotional decisions. And we need to make decisions that are going to help our public and to help our communities. And, and that's really the key. We need to get rid of any ulterior motives and just get rid of those and make it in a way that really helps people to be healthy and happy. I want to go back to the phone lines. Matt is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Matt, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Um, sorry. Uh, no, the, that's okay. Thank uh, vaccine, you. if it's not effective enough to treat what's going on, could we run into a situation where, where we're actually breeding a more robust virus, sort of like the problem that we have with antibiotics these days? Boy, Matt, that's a good question, and I sure hope the answer is no. Michael Kent, should we worry about that too? <laughs> I'm hoping the answer to the question is no as well. Uh, antibiotic resistance, and it's a great parallel, and that's actually a huge problem as well that we need to discuss someday. But um, a vaccine, a, a, a substandard vaccine, hopefully, would not create that kind of a problem. There is actually a, a possibility that it could, but it's pretty remote. Hmm. Um, the, the bigger concern I would have with a substandard vaccine would be that people that get the vaccine would have a false sense of security and would resume high-risk behaviors and thereby both risk themselves and risk the people around them. So it's I, I believe, and I've actually, in a lot of my writings in the last few weeks and a lot of these interviews, I've said it's I think we can anticipate that the first vaccine that we get will be fairly mediocre hmm. compared to five or 10 years from now when we'll have a fantastic vaccine. Um, I don't think there would be harm from a mediocre vaccine. Um, Michael Kinch, are, are you still there? Uh-oh. Uh, boy, Michael Kinch was sounding terrific, and he just uh, dropped off the air. I think his internet must have cut out. I'm going to just go to a caller. Um, Candy is calling from St. Louis. Um, Candy, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Candy? Hello? Hi. <laughs> Thank you for oh, joining us. Hi. Yes. Um, I saw on the news a few weeks ago, I thought that Washington University is actually part of Warp Speed, and it's going to be doing some of these clinical trials. So it's kind of surprising to me that a WashU scientist is raising the alarm. Um, as a potential subject, I, you know, I, I signed up through that 
the website to potentially participating in these one of these trials. And I'm just curious. Yeah, um, Candy, I, th- I think that's that a great question. Yeah. We, should people go ahead and, and participate in these trials? Is that still a, a, a good thing here? Uh, Michael Kinch, in our last couple minutes here, what would be your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, I'll tell you, I've volunteered as well to sign up for the trial, and I'm really hoping I get into it. I'm not worried about the fact we're having trials. That's not the concern at all. Um, The concern is that if we prematurely try to interpret the results from a very small number of people that have been tracked for a short period of time, we might not get a full understanding and we might leave people far more vulnerable than we think that they are or that they think that they are. So the example is that if you have, let's just take an example, a bunch of 20-year-old college students that have a robust response to the vaccine, that doesn't mean mean necessarily that a geriatric population would comparably have such a response. Mm-hmm. And it could be dangerous to try to extrapolate that. So you are not worried about these trials. These, these trials are, are safe and important. You just want us to take some um, uh, to take some precautions as we go ahead not to rush this. Exactly. Well, Michael Kinch, um, you have been just such a help, and I'm so glad that we got you back on the phone today. In the the last minute that we have here, um, you were sort of saying the thing that people were whispering. Now that you've said it, are you getting a good response? Initially, the response was quite hostile. I was getting uh, both from the far political left and the far political right a lot of hostility in that first 48 hours after the article came out. Then, actually, the New York Times and a bunch of other uh, CNN and a number of other sites came back and found the same concerns from other scientists, and all of that negativity, thankfully, went away. So uh, it was an interesting situation. Yeah, that is super interesting. And I have to say, I've seen you everywhere lately. So it seems like now people are really interested in in hearing this message. And I think it's an important part of this conversation to have. So uh, Michael Kinch, thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you, sir. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.